The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a supernatural detective tracks a missing person in a haunted hotel. A young engineer ships out to hostile space, and future archaeologists uncover the strange past of the universe. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshairad. Today, DJ Butler sits down with the first, second, and third place winners of this year's Bain Fantasy Adventure Award. The award recognizes the best original adventure fantasy short story in the style of fantasy greats like Mercedes Lackey, Larry Correa, Jim Butcher, Charlene Harris, Elizabeth Moon, Andre Norton, Brandon Sanderson, J.R.R. Tolkien, and David Weber. Christopher Baxter took the top prize this year for his story on Cultivating a Chosen One. Joining him are second place winner Marshall Moore and third place winner Brittany Randon. Congratulations to all three winners. And don't forget to check out Christopher Baxter's story free to read right now at Bain.com. But first, the news. A new batch of eARCs has arrived. For those who don't know, an eARC is an electronic advanced reader copy. These are uncorrected page proofs that publishers make available to reviewers and which Bain makes available to you for a limited time. Let's take a look at what we have this month. First up is Haunted by the Past, a brand new Ishmael Jones novel by Simon R. Green. When Lucas Carr goes missing, Seemingly without a trace from Glenberry Hall, an old country manor house turned hotel, it falls to Ishmael Jones and his love and partner in crime, Penny Belcourt, to solve the mystery. The pair soon find that Glenberry Hall has a reputation for being haunted, but Carr's disappearance may have as much to do with the mysterious organization Jones and Belcourt and Carr work for as it does with the Hall's past. Ishmael and Penny have to work their way through a series of mysterious clues and misleading suspects, uncovering secret after secret before they finally arrive at a truth no one suspected. The problem with history is that it's not always content to stay in the past. Next up, we have Summer's Inn by John Van Stry. Fresh out of college with his ship engineer third class certificate, Dave Walker is forced to take the first berth he can find, the Iowa Hill, an old tramp freighter running with a minimal crew and nearing the end of its useful life, plying the trade routes that the corporations ignore and visiting the kinds of places that the folks on earth pretend don't exist. Between the assassins, the criminals, and the pirates he needs to deal with, Dave is discovering that there are a lot of things out there that he still needs to learn. But there's one hard lesson he learned long ago, and that he's being forced to remember. How to be ruthless. And finally, we have Worlds Long Lost, edited by Christopher Rocchio and Sean C.W. Korsgaard. We were not alone. The farther we push into the universe, the more obvious it becomes. The signs are everywhere. Canals and pyramids on Mars, 
old roads on the moons of Jupiter, ruined cities on worlds about the nearer stars. The galaxy once teemed with life, or so it seems, which begs the question, what happened to it all? These stories explore the ruins of lost civilization, solve ancient mysteries, and awaken horrors from beyond the dawn of time. That's Haunted by the Past, Summer's End, and World's Long Lost, all available as eARCs for a limited time. And that's it. The dead travel quickly for great ebook deals. Other publishers might want to suck the life out of you, charging too much for ebooks, but not Bain. We're driving a stake through the heart of high ebook prices. Invite us into your e-reader with great deals on Bain ebooks featuring vampires. But act quickly, these deals will evaporate just like Nosferatu when the sun comes up on October 1st. And be sure to check out David Carrico's new novel, The Blood is the Life. For this ebook sale, get $1 off The Half-Life Chronicles by William Mark Simmons, The Lord Richard Vampire Novels by Nigel Bennett and P.N. Elrod, and the short story anthology, Fangs for the Mammaries, edited by Esther Friesner. These discounts apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. Welcome, listeners. This is uh, DJ Dave Butler. I'm here with the 2022 first, second, and third place winners of the Bain Fantasy Adventure Award. Uh, Brittany Marshall and uh, Christopher, congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, it's fantastic to meet you. I had a chance to meet Marshall uh, over to the Dragon Con this last weekend. You guys missed out on some pretty good Chinese food, I have to tell you. It was pretty delicious. Yeah, shoes is all right. <laughs> shoes is all right. Um, but uh, but I'm meeting Brittany and Christopher for the first time, and uh, I'd love to get to know you a little bit with uh, along with our uh, listeners, most of whom probably don't know. Um, so uh, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about you as 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 writers. Uh, you know. How did you end up writing science fiction stories? Well, it's a terrible way to make a living. You should know that. It doesn't look that way because you like Brandon Sanderson, but you don't see like the million people that are eating ramen out of a shoe. So, um, Brittany, uh, tell, tell us how you, I should say, it was Brittany won third place in the Bain Fantasy Adventure Award this year. Congratulations for her short Thank story you. exchange, which we will talk Thank about. You. But but tell us first about yourself. How did, how did you decide to get into writing and writing? I should say, I don't know if you write science fiction. I do know you write at least one fantasy story. So how did you get into writing fantasy? <laughs> um, yeah, I write both science fiction and fantasy stories. I've written ever since I was a little girl. Um, I wrote a lot until I went to college. I went to nursing school and I kind of took a break and got married and have had kids. And I think after my third kid, I just needed some sort of creative outlet and I came back to writing and have just kept writing, you know, I love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nursing school. That's interesting. What kind of nursing? Are you still a nurse? I, right now I'm not practicing nursing. I have five children oh. and so I, I stay home. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, so, so at this point I stay home until, uh, I, I did work until I had my, my third child and shortly after that I 
I, I didn't anymore, but I worked mostly in medical, surgical, and rehabilitation nursing. Okay. All right. Very cool. You have five children. This is this is uh, this is a positively uh, subversive countercultural move these days to have five children. I just tell you, I'm I'm one of six, so you know. But but five is a lot of kids. Way to, way to go. So how how what's the age range like? Um, my youngest is six months, um, hmm. and my oldest it just turned eleven. So okay, yeah. Fantastic uh so uh so that's interesting uh children children are a factor in your story we'll just talk about that in, in a minute here a, a big a big feature a big factor um but why sci-fi fantasy why not something that pays money like i don't know thrillers or presidential memoirs um i don't know i i've just always loved science fiction and fantasy i mean growing up Ender's Game, Narnia, uh, Harry Potter, of course, that came out. I remember reading the first book when I was like in fifth grade, you know, and I don't know. I just love, I just love that stuff. So that's why, <laughs> you know. Okay. So, and, and do you have, uh, do you have other publications? Is I this do. Mm-hmm. So where yeah. can, I shouldn't ask a yes, no question. The better question is, so where, where else can our listeners find you? Um, I've been published by Deep Magic and I have been, I'm in Writers of the Future volume 37 and in 38. Um, Cause I was a published finalist in that contest um, and for volume 37. And then I won second place in that contest for volume 38. Congratulations. Year. Oh, thank you. Perfect. I've been trying to do that for ages. Uh, well, well done. Uh, thank you. So that, um, those are the only places I've been published, but um, you can find me there and I have a website. So. Okay, very cool. Deep Magic is a periodical, is that right? No, or so Deep, Deep Magic is an e-magazine. They just um, went out, but you can, uh, they're, they're no longer publishing new stories, but you can still get them on Amazon. Mm -hmm. So, yep. yeah. The, this isn't their first time closing down or either. They'll probably be back in a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. I believe there are theme awesome. modes like uh, clean fantasy, essentially, like family friendly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Uh, okay. So what else should we know about you? I don't want to let you out too soon, Brittany. What, what else should we know about you? Like, like where, where are you from? I don't know. What, what, what are your favorite foods? <laughs> Um, I grew up in Texas. I am the only girl. I have four brothers. Um, and so my, my children, we flipped that. I have four daughters and one little boy. And uh, I moved up to Idaho when I went to nursing school and I never came back <laughs> to Texas. So I met my husband. I went to school at BYU-Idaho and graduated from the nursing program there. And yeah, I've I'm just hanging out in Idaho. I like, I like gardening. I like planting trees. I love tennis. I play tennis. I don't know. Yeah. Where, where in Idaho are you? I'm in Blackfoot. Blackfoot. That's funny. I, a good friend of mine from a long time ago grew up at farming potatoes in Blackfoot. I visited him. Oh. Very flat. His eight-year-old sister drove us on four-wheelers across the farm. Is there, there's, uh, I mean, Blackfoot's big enough. You don't know everybody though. There's right? a potato museum. 
am here. Yeah. Well, that is the potato part of it. You know, uh, probably not everybody. It, yeah. it is. They have the, it is the Tego Museum of Idaho is there. So, okay. you know, our claim to fame, I guess. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. Cool. So you don't know like a Nick Benson who would be 49 years old by any chance. Short guy kind of looks like E.L. Fudge. Or <laughs> too young to know who E.L. Fudge is. No. I don't know that I do, but okay. I, maybe I run into him sometime. It is pretty small. Okay. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, thank you. That's, you got us off on a, on, a, on a good foot there. Marshall Moore is a uh, Muay Thai kickboxer. Muay Thai kickboxing, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, who uh, uh, was born in the Marshall Islands? Am I remembering that right? Your name? You are. I was named for the Marshall Islands. Um, it's a small Pacific island nation that was a uh, Japanese imperial territory during World War II. Uh, the U.S. liberated it during the war and has been using it for missile testing and uh, research ever since. Uh, that's actually the shape of the island I grew up on behind me and the colors of the national flag. And isn't it like like one and a half square miles or something? The island itself is something like that. It's like two miles long and a half mile wide. It's called Kwajalein. Yeah. Um, and, and no longer US sovereign territory, right? Like in the 80s or 90s or something became- mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was a protector, I think until about 89, but uh, the US still leases a military base there, which, explains why I am this complexion. Yeah. And it's because you're irradiated. That's why. <laughs> it is the same country that Bikini is in. So, uh, okay. And so you've got, um, you, but you're kind of like rocket royalty, right? Why, why were you out in the Marshall Islands? Why were your parents in the Marshall Islands for you to be born there? Uh, my dad was a lieutenant colonel in the army, or at least he was when he retired. I think he was more like a major at the time I was born. Um, and uh, he was in aerospace. So when he retired, he uh, went and worked for Boeing, who was obviously one of the big uh, defense contractors out there, one of the main employers on the island. So it just kind of uh, worked out that he was uh, stationed there. And that's where we grew up until I was about 13. Yeah. So, okay. So tell us the straight dope here then. Uh, isn't that the right background for a science fiction writer? What are you doing writing stories about like Ronin and, and uh, you know, uh, elves and stuff? Should I mean, all kids funny? rebel against their parents, right? Is that what it is? <laughs> Rebelling against your, against your, against Boeing connections of your father. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm, um, I do like sci-fi, but I find that I'm um, not mathematical or scientifically engaged enough to really uh follow in the Heinlein footsteps I'm I'm one of those you know read Tolkien on a yearly basis type guys so it's it's the sword and sorcery for me most of the time but I do dabble in the sci-fi horror side of things yeah now now you don't mean sword and sorcery as a genre because that's usually not how what how Tolkien is described you just mean yeah not not specifically but just you know that more on that side of the umbrella of yeah. SFF so uh, how did you get into, like, how did you get into writing? At what point did you say, aha, what I'm going to do 
just kickbox like <laughs> fantasy stories um so i was one of those kids who was you know i was making up stories growing up um when i was really little i like i said military kid um we moved around a bit in between the island and the states um and one year i was uh held back basically and had to be put in a specialized reading program and that ended up ironically kickstarting my love of reading um so i've been writing my whole life but i was uh making i was trying to get into the film industry uh first in la and here in atlanta and that is much like the publishing industry very networking and connection oriented but i was uh not really loving it and i decided a year or two before the pandemic hit actually that um you know i've been writing all this time i need to start making a uh, focused shot of it and try and turn it more into a career and so i uh i'd written already like i think two novel manuscripts at that point did the whole querying agents thing didn't work out and uh shifted my focus to short stories and now i've got i think like 18 of them published and uh i finally got that novel out so clearly it worked for me yeah so I should I, I think I didn't say I should say that Marshall you won second place in this year's Bain yeah. Fantasy Adventure Award contest, and the thing you're alluding to, which I'm not sure we have actually said yet on the in the recorded part of the podcast, is that your debut novel is we're sort of like in the middle of the release. There was a pre-release at DragonCon, yeah, uh, where the book was selling pretty well. As I we sold out of the copies we uh, we ordered for the limited print, so yeah, good sign. <laughs> um and uh and then the official release is maybe uh maybe around the time of the release of this podcast end of september uh the book your your first your debut novel comes out right yeah at the very least the pre-order should be up by the time this podcast goes live so that is the pale city from shadow alley press i've seen press for that all right that's That's awesome that is that is awesome congratulations thank you um we'll hold off talking about your short story for a minute i want to talk about that as you know as a group but sure. uh but tell us about the novel what uh, what's that about readers yeah. can go find it right now so absolutely so uh the pale city is a high fantasy novel about a soldier torn between his conflicting loyalties to the country he serves and the minority religion which it oppresses uh, after battlefield injuries cut his career short, he struggles to find meaning in his civilian life until the discovery that one of the city's politicians has been murdered plunges him into a web of mystery and intrigue. And now he has to save the city he loves and reconcile himself with his estranged wife. And also there is necromancy and zombie soldiers. So I'm, I'm glad you did not omit the zombie soldiers. Now nah, I got to save that for the end. That's going to be a draw for some of our podcast listeners, perhaps more than reconciling with his estranged wife though they're both (laughs) you got to pack all the conflict into the blurb you can you got to know your audience that's all i'm saying uh that's so that's that's great that's very exciting congratulations thank you um you now you you said filmmaking Mm -hmm. uh and again you and i had a had a chance to to meet at dragon con so i know what you mean but maybe you can explain a little more what you mean to everybody else uh, regarding well your filmmaking right so what does that mean you you were getting into into what is that right so um atlanta for those who, I'm, I'm atlanta based for those who don't know and um atlanta is 
one of the big hubs for the filmmaking industry in the country. Uh, we're number three between behind LA and New York. Um, all the Marvel stuff shoots here. I'm really good friends with this stunt man who's been in like every Marvel production. Um, so there's, there's a ton of business down here in that industry. And that's what I went first to school for and uh, moved to Los Angeles trying to make it in that business right out of college. Um, and it, I love the act of uh, filmmaking, like the whole team sort of nature of it, of being on a set with people, um, you know, working together in different departments or across different departments. Uh, but the constant hustle and grind of, you know, you've got to make these connections to get the next gig uh, really wore me down over the like four or five years I was trying to do that. So that's about the point where I decided to shift my focus to writing. So am I right to, to say then that you were, that grind was looking for acting gigs, but also potentially looking to direct films? Uh, directing was my dream at that point. Yeah. Um, I, I tried the like starving actor thing for basically just one year out in LA before I decided that I had enough experience out there that I would uh, prefer the behind the camera experience. So I was more doing uh, production assistant stuff. Um, a little bit of second AD, second assistant directing, which is uh, was fun. That was a lot more my speed. That's a lot of uh, coordinating the production. And uh, I enjoyed doing that. But like I said, the the grind and hustle of the industry ended up being what uh, made me turn my sights elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like way too much extroversion for me. Yeah. Fortunately, in publishing, there's no grind. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, never. It's Never. all, you, you just kind of spring in every step and, you know, rainbows follow you down the street. Hey, you saw me this weekend. I'm just happy to be here. Yeah. Well, well, welcome. Welcome. Thanks. Um, all right. Uh, a little, little pseudo drum roll. Uh, first place winner uh, of this year's 2022's Bane Fantasy Adventure Wars, Christopher Baxter. Um, Christopher, tell us about yourself and, and how you got into writing and and all the questions I've been asking, where readers can find you and, and, uh, and so on. All right. Well, I, I started writing in high school. I uh, used to read a lot in class when I was supposed to be paying attention. I got in trouble for it a lot. And finally, one day I, uh, I had enough books confiscated that I ran out and I was looking for something to do. And I thought, you know, hey, I, I could I could start writing a story here. Never thought about that, never tried it. But the great thing about it is it looks like you're taking notes. And so I could write all I wanted in class and I never got in trouble for it. And uh, so I spent the rest of my high school career, most of my college career doing that in most of my classes. And uh, no one ever gave me any trouble for it. It was great. Also works at workplaces most of the time, depending on your job. And um, yeah, it's really handy. Uh, I've been re reading. Uh, some of my earliest memories are of reading and learning to read, and uh, I, I love it. So I've always been doing it. And so it was a very natural step once I stepped into that and uh, wrote a whole lot in high school. And uh, then I uh, came back to it after a few years and realized that everything I'd written was exceptionally de derivative crap and uh, tossed out 99% of that and started over. And but I got a degree in editing uh, in college and either supplemented or made that my primary income for a good 12 years now. Uh, it's been off and on how much of that I was doing and then writing in my own time. And uh, so, yeah, it, 
it's it's just been a very large part of my life for as long as I can remember. And I've and I've I've I'll write anything I can wherever I can. I've done uh, used to do with the editing. I've done everything from websites to uh, to books and short stories. My favorite project I ever edited was probably the Planet Mercenary RPG by Howard Taylor nice. and Alan Barr. Yeah, that was most fun I've ever had editing anything ever. If you've ever played an RPG, you know, no one sits down with a D&D source book and just reads it for fun. You know, you, you go looking for what you need, but Planet Mercenary, well worth just picking up that source book, reading it from cover to cover. It's amazing and hilarious. And so, yeah, that's probably my favorite thing I've ever edited. And I've done, uh, I used to have a podcast with some friends that you can still find on YouTube, a more civilized podcast, which is about Star Wars as uh, my friend who's a historian, another friend who's an artist, uh, video game art uh, artist that uh, we did together, had a really good time. And then we set that aside so my friend could uh, get into making video games proper. He's got a game studio, Arbitrary Games, that I write for him. I do puzzle design. And we've been uh, fleshing out some... um, demos that we've been sending around to publishers trying to get some funding for and then i uh i I liked i tried my hand at making youtube videos recently and i'm trying to get into that i really enjoy watching uh videos on writing on youtube so i thought i'd give that a try as well and i'm enjoying that and that's uh deconstructing stories is my uh channel that you can find on youtube of course and then I write. I've been published in Deep Magic, I think, with Brittany, actually. Yes. Um, I, uh, I I know your name. I've seen it. And and when, so when you said that, oh. I was like, ah, there we go. That's it. It's got to be it. Um, so I've been published there. I've had, uh, let's see, what was most recent? You can find a couple of my short stories on writerinthehat.com. And so I publish one or two of the ones that have lapsed back into my ownership and uh yeah okay fantastic very good um i guess some obvious questions martial arts very little Uh, i took a judo class in college yeah brazilian jiu-jitsu and i think i did some and okay it okay and I didn't hear any medical professional in your background. So just checking. No, no, none, none whatsoever. Yeah. In fact, right now I, I, I'm a stay at home dad. I got three kids at home. Oh, cool. Uh, two little boys that are doing school for the first time. We've been homeschooling up till this point, but they wanted to try public school and figured, all right, why not? That's, it hasn't quite reached the point where it's actually freeing up much time in my day since the, yeah. the primary time sink of the three of them was the, uh, five month old but but uh hopefully at some point i'll be able to find some more writing time during the day thanks to that yeah um and you live in springville utah i do which is where my hatter is located oh yeah yeah down on center just off of maine yeah just off maine customer yeah they're amazing fine they're not cheap no no which is why i don't own any of their hats i have a huge collection none of their hats right you can't it's not like a 45 dollar hat place it's like when you're ready to drop 500 dollars yeah that's the dream someday head and they cut all the felt and they use the 
you know, steam presses. It's yeah. Yeah. Once I'm making all of those science fiction fantasy millions, that's the big, the big, it's right around the corner. I think this is everybody's a millionaire. Yeah. Yeah. Dirty, dirty little. You're not yet. You will be right. Right. It's imminent. Um, uh, Okay. Uh, So it sounds like all of you were kind of in it for the long haul. None of you said this is a fluke. I just did this for a school assignment (laughs) or something like that. You all want to publish uh and, and novels right everyone's like hey i'd like to do novels yep yep very cool very cool well uh this year you won you all won um uh, well you won the top three places you were announced as finalists i don't know a few weeks ago maybe on the website you were the top three places in the let me say it again bane fantasy adventure award um let's uh let's talk about uh about your stories and Brittany, we started with you before so i'm going to mix it up a little bit uh marshall you published or you you submitted a story about a character you've written about before mm-hmm. right yes uh why don't you tell us about this character what what what, do you, what is so interesting is the story is red lanterns mm-hmm. um tell us about this character and why is this character interesting to you why, why have you written multiple stories about this character yeah so uh red lanterns is part of my okabe yukiko stories which is the uh Adventures of the titular titular uh, female samurai Ronin uh, wandering feudal Japan and fighting monsters, hunting yokai, and generally just doing the classic hero's adventure, solving people's problems. Um, big fantasy nerd, big uh, Kurosawa nerd, and I started digging into you know sort of Japanese mythology and yokai stuff and thinking i could probably make some you know sort of pulpy little adventures out of this and they just ended up being really fun to write like it was a familiar tropes but in a setting that is not as familiar to western audiences and you know admittedly not always as familiar to me like i'm doing research in all these stories and finding out more stuff about this time period and place that i'm really interested in so red lanterns in particular was a uh sort of taking that format and uh, mixing it with your detective noir story. You know, it takes place in the red light district of the city of Sakai, which was like an infamous, you know, town for brothels and sake dens and kind of thing during the time period. And so most of the other ones I've written are sort of more rural countryside. So this was a chance to take her to the city and all the dens of vice. So it was a real fun one to write. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just just for the benefit of listeners, you don't get extra points for writing stories about brothels in red light districts. This is just coincidental. It <laughs> doesn't hurt though, right? I'm not saying it hurts either. Um, so it's interesting. So uh, though you talk about, you know, tropes and familiarity to Western audiences, but there's this interesting kind of space where kind of tales of uh wandering ronin and like tales of the wandering gunfighter in the old west kind of converge mm-hmm. right? uh and uh the, you know the person sort of apparently without roots maybe question mark without without honor can we trust that person you know turns out to be the one who's willing to risk herself for you know for others um so uh so what's so tell me about the character we've 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 talked about kids kind of a fair amount in the podcast mm-hmm. this, this and we will more 
Brittany, I'm looking at you. Uh, so actually, you too, Christopher. This is all about um, I have two cats. So I'm the only non-parent in the group. All right, here's time. Uh, so uh, so what uh, she's she's got a child kind of thing in her story, right? Yeah, so so all character, all good characters, especially ones that you're going to be writing over the course of multiple stories, need to have their emotional through line and in the case of yukiko um not only is she a ronin um she is a uh widow and the mother of a um deceased child uh her whole backstory thing is she was you know living the typical samurai aristocrat's life and then her uh family's estate was attacked by persons unknown and burned to the ground and uh she was uh separated from her uh, daughter who is the sort of central emotional point of her life and so her entire story is her trying to find new meaning in life and save others from that grief that she herself feels so that's kind of the emotional center point that connects all these different stories of her in different places yeah um and it's not now i've only read red lanterns but it's not as far as i can tell a vengeance arc or is she looking for the killers um this <laughs> so i do have about a quarter of a novel length manuscript written for her uh that will start to delve into that um i've elected to put that aside for the short stories just because it would detract focus um other than the occasional reference or illusion um but the, assuming that we get the full-length novel version out that that will come into play but no, for the purpose of Red Lanterns and the other short stories, it's more about uh, learning to live with grief and to help others in similar emotional distress. Okay, interesting. Um, what else? What else should people say? Should they know about your story? What? Actually, I guess they can't find it anywhere, can they? Or you? Uh, no, it's not published yet. <laughs> it's not published. That's what they should know: is they cannot yet read Marshall Moore's uh samurai classic red lanterns uh, they cannot but if you are interested in the other two okabe yukiko stories uh, you can find them at my website marshalljmore.com uh one of them kirishutan is free it is on the website mysterian which deals with uh christian speculative fiction and it follows her adventures encountering the underground christians of japan and i'm pretty proud of that one yeah, interesting uh marshall j moore two l's in marshall moore m-o-r-e yep yep okay fantastic so can i ask what uh what attracted you to the japanese history for that uh i watched seven samurai in college like the film snob i am and fell in love with it and just started diving more and more into kurosawa and um other uh takashi Mike and uh just other Japanese directors of that period and the more I watched these movies the more I was like this is a really neat time period and you know the personal drama at stake of the classic themes of you know loyalty and duty versus your personal integrity um you know they really are timeless and absolutely have relevance yeah. now and so I just kind of fell in love with the aesthetic and the intricacies of that setting so when i had the chance to write a story you said there i was like yeah i'm gonna try this and they've turned out pretty fun awesome yeah thank you very cool i am 
in my gaming group, we're about to start a Legends of the Five Ring uh, uh, gaming campaign. For the first time, I don't have to be Game Master. So like, I'm looking forward to it for more than one reason. You should be. I actually just wrapped up a three-year-long Legend of the Five Rings campaign where I was the DM. So, oh, Very fun. Very fun. Yeah. Um, all right, Brittany. Your short story is Exchange. And again, there's a there. So I've been I've been I've been forecasting this the whole talk. Um, it's it's about children, right? Uh, in in some important ways. Um, tell us about your character. What's the deal with her and and her child, and why does that matter for this story? Um. Well, so my story uh, exchanged is about a mother who is trying to help detectives uh, find a kidnapped child. Um, her daughter has previously been kidnapped and they never found her, her body, though they assume she's dead. And she has this magical ability where she can touch objects and get their memories, but of what's happened around them. But um, to do that, she has to lose a memory. And so as she's helping these detectives, she is potentially losing memories of her child. Yeah. Um, and so weighing the ethical dilemma there. Um, anyway, it's yeah. Sort of, it's sort of experienced like a, um, at least like an offer and acceptance, maybe almost like a negotiation. So she pick up a backpack and there's like an offer to exchange. And the exchange is you're gonna give up a memory that's precious to you, but basically the backpack will give a memory uh back yes so why is that helpful to police um because they don't know what happened with the um you know no one witnessed the the kidnapping and the policeman i guess has previously were i haven't written a novel or anything like this before i don't have as much backstory as you know marshall does obviously with his uh, you know but uh, I in in my head she was a, a lady who had worked previously and she has um, done this before and she didn't realize what all she was giving up and now she is with her daughter gone so yeah, yeah. does that make sense <laughs> yeah no uh, it, it, it makes a lot of sense and so it kind of you know the question uh a, a question the story asks is you know what would make it worth it what would be worth it to forget about your own child right who by the way might be alive right we don't we don't know for sure she's dead she's missing um and uh you know in 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 the story the character there is something that that makes her willing to basically forget the last vestige right so at the in the final scenes, she's back in her home and she's looking at artifacts and she knows she knows that it's her child and she doesn't remember any of it. Yeah, yeah. I went for the bittersweet ending um, there. You know, uh, I hope maybe I can can turn that one into a novel. We'll see. <laughs> you know where that goes. But. Yeah, that's the, that's the bitter part. There is a sweet part to the ending also. Yeah. So, but if you turn that character into a novel, so will she start losing memories of other things? I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I haven't got that far, I guess. I, I should think some more on it. I, and 
and, and write some more on it, I guess. I've been a little out of it because, you know, I had my baby and stuff. But um, I wrote that at Writers of the Future for their, their 24-hour challenge story. I don't know if you think about that. Hmm. Um, but they give you an object. Huh? You wrote exchange for their 24-hour challenge. I did. I did. And they ended up actually picking that story to be critiqued there. I was very fortunate. So, um, yeah. And so I, um, yeah, uh, Tim Powers and Dave Farland gave me their thoughts on that and stuff. They told me I needed to send it in. So I'm very glad I did. Yeah. Uh, that because those are some names. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, very uh very cool you know the farther you went down that road she kept forgetting stuff and eventually uh, she'd be like a a pastiche of memories not her own she'd remember at some point less about her own life or what she's doing like eventually that person becomes insane right because you you lose i, I suppose they could you know yeah that could be i'm saying that could be an interesting novel this person becoming increasingly fragmented uh, sacrificing herself to solve crimes mm-hmm. um, almost be like a memento style like yeah yeah that sounds awesome yeah kind of like memento kind of like a metaphor for maybe what it's like to be in law enforcement anyway where you're stressing your own relationships and sacrificing you put, putting your body in harm's way and sometimes losing limb right life and limb uh but but she'd be giving up her memories and eventually her personality. I think that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I look forward to writing it if you read it, Brittany. Very cool. Yeah. Um, all right, Christopher, uh, here we go. This is the, the winning story. Uh, hold on, let me make sure, I'm gonna look at the title to make sure I'm getting it right. On Cultivating a Chosen One. And this is the one that I think, I think as of now, it may already be on the website. Yeah. By the time this airs, from what I've been told, it probably should be. It should be. Yeah. If not, it'll be there shortly. Yeah. So, uh, so tell us, so tell us about the story. Uh, it's a little, it's a little playful. It's a little subversive. Uh, it's a little ironic. So, yeah, this is a story about, so this, uh, a, a dark Lord has risen up taken over a nation laid waste and a uh, former professor of prophetic history is trying to reach the resistance and show them that they're going about trying to take this guy down in the wrong way they can't do it on their own what they need is a chosen one and so they he wants to start working to create the circumstances that will bring about a chosen one yeah. Which means, you know, generally we need we need a lot of orphanages and a lot of orphans. We need we need half breeds. We need anybody who's on the fringes of society who's going to be looked down upon, trampled, their rights ridden over roughshod. Uh, anything we can do to bring about more and more of that. We want to hire prostitutes to have more children and give them up to us. We want, you know, especially if they're in the military, if they're in the direct line of command of the the dark lord himself but then uh, as they go about this program they start running into some unexpected problems with this they're just some some acts of very uh of odd benevolence from their dark lord that seem to be trying to combat their efforts to create a chosen one yeah sorry, i need to re- leave the call and go read this right now i know i'm <laughs> sitting there like oh yes that's a good job 
Thank you. Yeah. So there's this like irony that, whoa, maybe if I oppress a little bit less, then I reduce the chances that there will be a chosen one, right? So there's this, there's a lot of fun strands. There's kind of a little bit of mocking some tropes. Um, Absolutely. There's also the kind of ironic exploration of like the risk, you know, the, re the relationship between tyranny and the response to tyranny, right? Mm -hmm. And there's also a kind of like an academic um, politics sort of thing uh, in it as well. Uh, sure. So uh, very, very, very good. Well done. Thank you. Um, yeah. Now, is, is that secretly going to become a nod? Is this are is, are these characters have they appeared elsewhere it doesn't feel like the they have not no you know this one i uh i wrote in less than 24 hours i i had the idea kicking around this one actually came from uh i read a lot of historical nonfiction. i have a degree in russian history and you and know and editing and also the the editing's technically a minor but it's okay. still a degree right um but i uh you know, I read so much about all these tyrants throughout history, you get a lot of them in Russia. And I, uh, I look at that and I just wonder, you know, the pattern of the, these downfalls of, of all of these uh, tyrants and the, the oppressive regimes that they have tends to be pretty similar wherever you go. And I just wondered, you know, what would it be like to have a tyrant who is smart enough to see the writing on the wall and be like, all right, no, we've oppressed as far as we can. We've milked, we milked this place for all we can, but if we keep on going, we're going to end up dead. So, you know, the, the rebellion starts rising up and they just come out with open arms and say, hey, you know what? You're right. We need to fix things here. Let's work on that. Catch them off guard. And then just as they're all like, all right, we're setting up a provisional government. This is what it's going to be before they start taking away the rights of that tyrant because they're going to have to be tried and, you you take everything you can get and scarper off to Argentina and and uh, and so then I took that a bit further for just a fantasy setting like what would it be like to have a dark lord who's like well this is inevitably going to happen chosen ones pop up left and right we know how this goes can't rule forever but I can prolong this as long as possible if I just keep these circumstances from showing up so it originally started with the the night lord in that story and then. Uh, from there developed into professor bellick and his his efforts to ensure that this night lord doesn't get away with that you gotta the chosen one's gotta show up yeah um yeah what a lot of fun what a lot of fun that was thank you um such a good take just the very meta nature of it and to what lengths the uh professor will go to create his own chosen one well, yeah <laughs> yeah just just at what point do you stop being the good guy and start being the bad guy and right it was actually originally going to be a, twice as long and uh and then i just i reached a point where i looked at it and went you know what that's actually uh that's actually an all right ending that i just wrote we'll just leave it there <laughs> and uh glad i did now yeah. Yeah. wow very good well let's um let's uh let's let me wind up let's talk about future plans here or or or, or what are we working on now we'll 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 pick a new order which means christopher you have to go first it only hasn't gone first awesome 
So what are you what are you writing now? What uh, what what do we expect to see from you in the future? When are you going to send novels my way to look at? Right. I'm hoping to have uh, the novel I'm working on right now finished by the end of the year. I'm adapting a novella I wrote a while back was about 46k into a full length novel that'll probably be about 100,000, 120, or yeah, yeah, about there. It's uh, called The Crystal Swarm, and it's about a uh, this massive swarm of magical creatures that wipes out a nation and one of the few survivors makes a deal with a demon to be able to go back in time and try to save her nation and her family before they get overwhelmed and it's her efforts to try and change the past and uh i've i've yeah the the, the i loved the novella wrote it but there's just not a lot of markets for novellas especially for first timers and mm -hmm. so uh, I, I looked at that and went, you know, this could be a lot of fun if we just went a little more in depth on what this nation is, what the psychology of this experience is like for her and uh, having a lot of fun with it. But I'm also really bad at focusing on one project at a time. So I motivate myself to write that by saying, okay, I got to write uh, up to the next scene break. And then I can write something on this short story over here that I'm doing for writers of the future. And, and then once I do that, I can go work on the script for a YouTube video that I'm doing. And I did uh, that deconstructing story channel is something I want to work on. I did a video about a year ago about writing a riveting rescue. Now, those rescue scenes like you get at the end of uh, the two towers with the writers of Rohan or the uh, Avengers Endgame with them coming through the portals there and uh how those how those scenes work and and how they sometimes don't work if you don't do the setup properly and i had a blast doing it but it's just so much work i haven't i don't have a lot of background in video editing so i was learning as i went and it was a big headache so i didn't end up doing a second video and recently i managed to set myself up a little space here where i might be able to record i think if i if i'm doing it vlog style facing the camera maybe i won't have quite as much sound work and editing to do um and that might make it into something that i can just do for fun on on the regular so i've uh, hopefully even by the time this goes up i may have a, a video up on potemkin plots which are plots that look like a familiar plot that we've seen before but in reality that they, they don't they're not doing the work they don't have anything behind them no plot behind them I have yep. to ask, do you mention the um, the trope name, the Fireflies Big Damn Heroes moment in that video? I have this I have the scene is as I'm discussing different instances of it, but I, I actually used the uh, the cavalry rescue is what I've seen it. I think on TV tropes, the name of it right now is the cavalry rescue or something like that. But used to be big damn heroes, but I, I do uh, love that. I have a I have a shirt, big damn heroes that I just love them. Yeah, I haven't done a TV trips binge in a while, so they've probably changed some titles. Oh yeah, yeah, they're all constantly shifting. But... Very good, thank you for that, uh, Marshall. What's next for you? What projects are you working on? So, like I mentioned, my novel is coming out. Um, it is the first in a trilogy. The first one is the Pale City. It is going to be followed. Actually, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say the names of the sequels yet, so I'm not going to, but there will be two more. Uh, the second one is at the 
copy editor stage currently, and the third one I am about 38,000 words into. So trying to knock those out by the end of the year and then possibly revisiting that uh, full-length Yukihum manuscript idea. I also have a novella with her. The Chris mentioning the novella just remind me of that, but that also has not found a home because novellas. Yep. Yeah. Understood. Uh, fantastic, Brittany. What are you What are you working on these days? What What should we expect to see next from you? Well, right now I'm mostly focusing on short stories and and a novella. Okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but <laughs> like, like yeah, long live the novellas. Uh, but um, yeah, mostly I'm just focusing on the short fiction right now I do eventually want to write novels I figure right now I'm writing a bunch of story seeds while my kids are young and I'll jump more into the novels once they're all in school a few years from now you know um but yeah I'm just submitting editing sh short stories that I have and that's where I am fantastic fantastic all right. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, once again, this is DJ Butler. Uh, have, we've, we've talked today with the 2022 winners of the Bain Fantasy Adventure Award. Uh, congratulations to all three of you, and thank you all very much uh, for your time. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. This has been fun. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. I do believe, Jacob Dane said as the sound of Deutsch's footsteps faded away, that Adirondack's self-appointed conscience is overdue for some leaf time. Shut up, Jacob, Halloran advised, making sure to put some steel in his voice. He'd long ago recognized that each of the underground members had to deal with the presence of the Cobras in his own way, but Dane's approach, treating them with a faintly supercilious air, was a dangerous bit of overcompensation. He doubted the other had noticed it, but as Deutsch's hands had curled into fists a few minutes ago, there had been the briefest pause with thumb resting against ring fingernail, the position for firing fingertip lasers at full power. In case you didn't bother to notice, he added, just about everything Emil said was right. Including the efficacy of a rescue mission? Dane snorted. Halloran turned to Weissman. I notice, Borg, that you haven't given your decision on assigning underground personnel to help locate Johnny. Before you do, let me just point out that there's exactly one troughed installation we know exists that we haven't got even a rough locale for. You mean the ghost focus? Amma frowned. That's crazy. Johnny's a ticking bomb. They'd be stupid to put him anywhere that sensitive. Depends on what they're planning for him, MacDonald rumbled thoughtfully. As long as he's alive, they're safe enough. Besides, our self-destructs aren't all that powerful. 
Any place hardened against, say, tack nuke grenades wouldn't have any trouble with us. On top of that, Halloran added, it's clear from their slow response to Immel and me that they weren't particularly expecting a raid on Volker tonight. Johnny's booby trap may have been sitting there for months, and it's as reasonable as anything else to assume they weren't really prepared with another place to put him that we didn't already know about. If the ghost focus is like their other tactical bases, they'll have it carved into parallel, independently hardened warrants. They wouldn't be risking more than the one Johnny was actually in. I've never heard that about tactical bases, Amma said, her eyes hard on Halloran. He shrugged. There are a lot of things you've never heard, he told her bluntly. You ever volunteer to penetrate a troughed installation with us, and maybe we'll tell you what we know about those hellholes. Until then, you'll have to take our word for it. He had the satisfaction of seeing her mouth tighten. To people like Amma, the only real power was knowledge. Turning to Weissmann, he cocked an eyebrow. Well, Borg? Weissmann pressed his fingertips tightly against his lips, staring at and through Halloran. All right, he said with a sigh. I'll authorize some of our people for search duty and see if I can borrow a few from other sectors. But it'll be passive work only, and won't begin until after sunup. I don't want anyone getting caught violating curfew. And no one's going into combat. Fair enough. It was about as much as Halloran could have expected. Kennet? MacDonald steepled his fingers. I won't risk my team randomly tearing up the south side of Kranach, he said quietly. But if you can show me a probable location, we'll help you hit it. Whatever the troughs want with Johnny... I suspect it's behavior we ought to discourage. Agreed, and thank you. Halloran gestured to Amma. Well, don't just sit there. Pull out the high-resolution maps and let's get to work. Johnny waited until his thirst was unbearable before finally breaking free of his restraints and going to the spigot in the cell's corner. Without a full analysis kit, it was impossible to make sure the water provided was uncontaminated and undrugged, but it didn't especially worry him. The troughs had had ample opportunity already to pump chemicals into his system, and exotic bacteria were the least of his worries. He drank his fill, and then, as long as he was up anyway, gave himself a walking tour of his cell. On the whole, it was a dull trip, but it did give him the chance to examine the walls more closely for remote monitors. The room was, as he'd earlier surmised, loaded with them. The cell door, up close, proved an intriguing piece of machinery. There were signs at one edge that both an electronic and a tumbler-type combination lock were being used, complementary possibilities to the temptingly exposed hinges he'd already noticed. The troughs, it appeared, were offering him subtle as well as brute-force escape options, each of which would give them useful data on his equipment, unfortunately. Returning to the table, he moved aside the remnants of the monitor shackles and lay down again. His internal clock circuit, which he hadn't had time to shut off or reset during his capture, provided him with at least the knowledge of how time was passing in the outside world. He'd been unconscious for three hours. Since his awakening, another five had passed. That meant it was almost ten o'clock in the morning out there. The people of Kranach were out at work in their damaged city. The children, including Danise Tolan, were at school, and the underground... The underground had already accepted and mourned his death and gone on with their business. His death, and possibly Callie's and Emel's as well. 
For a long, painful minute, Johnny wondered what had happened to his teammates. Had his warning been in time for them to escape? Or had the troughs been waiting with a giant trap ready to grab all of them? Perhaps they were in similar rooms right now, wondering identical thoughts as they decided whether or not to make their own escapes. They might even be next door to his cell, in which case a burst of anti-armor fire would open a communication hole and let them plan joint action. He shook his head to clear it of such unlikely thoughts. No help would be coming for him, and he might as well face that fact. If Imel and Callie were alive, they would have more sense than to try something as stupid as a rescue, even if they knew where to find him. And if they were dead, odds were he'd be joining them soon anyway. Unbidden, Denise Tolan's face floated into view. It looked like, barring a miracle, she was finally going to lose a close friend to the war. He hoped she'd be able to handle it. The human had been in the cell now for nearly seven Vohra, and except for a casual breaking of its loose restraints two Vohra ago, had made no attempt to use its implanted weaponry against its imprisonment. Resettling his wing-like radiator membranes against the backs of his arms, the city commander gazed at the bank of vision screens and wondered what he should do. His E.T. biologist approached from the left, puffing up his throat bladder in a gesture of subservience. "'Speak,' the Seacom invited. "'The last readings have been thoroughly rechecked,' the other said, his voice vaguely fluty in the local atmosphere's unusually high nitrogen content. "'The human shows no biological evidence of trauma or any of their versions of dreamwalking.' The Seacom flapped his arm membranes once in acknowledgment, so it was as he'd already guessed. The prisoner had deliberately chosen not to attempt escape, a ridiculous decision, even for an alien, unless it had somehow discerned what it was they had planned for it. From the Seacom's point of view, the alien couldn't have picked a worse time to show its race's stubborn streak. The standing order that these Kubra soldiers were to be killed instantly could be gotten around easily enough, but all the time and effort already invested would be lost unless the creature provided an active demonstration of its capabilities for the hidden sensors, which meant the Seacom was once more going to have to perform that most distasteful of duties. Seating his arm membranes firmly, he reached deep into his paraconscious mind, touching the mass of hard-won psychological data that had been placed there aboard the Domain Lord's mastership, and with great effort he tried to think like a human. The effort left a taste like copper oxide in his mouth, but by the time the Seacom emerged sputtering from his dream walk, he had a plan. Solely, he called to the soldier liaison seated at the security board. One patrol, fully equipped, in Tunnel One immediately. The solely puffed his throat bladder in acknowledgement and bent over his communicator. Spreading out his arm membranes, the dreamwalk had left him uncomfortably warm. The Seacom watched the dormant human and considered the best way to do this. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkiewicz. Praise, thanks, and congratulations, as well as gratitude, to Christopher Baxter, Marshall Moore, and Brittany Randon for sitting down and chatting with us today. 
and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.